Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Welcome back, everybody, to another week here on Uncommon Deeds. Hey, hey. Keeping the streak alive. Yep. This is 19. Yeah. And you guys don't get to hear it, but this is take two of our <laughs> open. We were interrupted by uh, Ev. Came to see Justin. Yeah, she came. Her knee hurt. Came to help. Needed a daddy kiss. Yeah. Um, but on the first open, we, we tried. put a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid on it. I surprised Justin with some Spanish. Oh, yeah. I studied for tens of minutes to be able to say, Hola, <laughs> todos soy Tom Corbett. Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Corbett. Y me llamo Justin. How do you say St. Louis in, in what is this Spanish? Wouldn't it just be St. Louis? I guess. I don't know. I think names don't change because it's a name. Yeah, all right. In French, it's Justin Saint Louis. Patrick LePearl will tell you that. I'm sure he will. Saint Louis? Bozo? So, <clears throat> yeah, Bozo. Patoff. Um, we were just talking about it off air. SRX. That was interesting. The Superstar. Racing experience. experience. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't even honestly didn't know that they were having their first race this past week. But I did freaking Facebook sends me those little advertisements and they've been getting me lately. I got to be careful yeah. about it, but advertise their video game was already out. And that's it looked interesting. Yeah, all right. I'll give that a try. I'm like, oh, that's mm -hmm. cool. And then next thing I know, it's because our phones are evil machines that are listening to everything. Everything. I'm YouTube is sending me videos from their first race this past Saturday, like uh -huh. from no explanation. It's like, oh, suggested for you. I'm like, why are you suggesting this unless you're listening? But mm -hmm. I did check out their first race. It was it was pretty good. You know, I yeah. Would, that's the best. That's kind of how it, I was like, oh, that's not bad. Nothing like blew me away. Nothing turned me off completely. Would watch again. Yeah. And I'm really, I think a lot of people probably are more interested to see what happens like this week when they hit Knoxville and they're on dirt and you have right. Helio Castro Neves on dirt. Right. Paul Tracy on dirt. That That hack Paul Tracy on dirt. I'll say it again. He's a hack. That's fine. Because Bloomer is going to wipe the He's floor a, of them. Like, we all know that, right? Scott Bloomquist is the special guest this week. He's just going to kill them all. That Guy Fieri wannabe. <laughs> You're talking about Paul Tracy, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see Scott Bloomquist with a blonde, dyed, bleached hair thing. Oh, that'd be great. True story. For entertainment purposes, my dad did buy one of those hats that has the fake yeah. blonde spiky hair. Yeah, yeah. He used to wear it in the kitchen yep. at camp when he was cooking at Covenant Hills. Did he make you call him Fietti? 
I don't remember that at any point, no. No. I finally messaged your dad back. I didn't call him, but I messaged him a few days ago. That's good. He was telling me about a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. I, from uh, from the Maritimes. And, um, yeah, I knew about it. But that's that's one that, you know, that's out there. He was He's searching. I, he I appreciate the hustle. And he couldn't, for whatever reason, he couldn't share on it. So he wanted to get in right. touch with you because... I can't share your stuff on there. Okay. I appreciate the hustle. And I know you would appreciate an obscure page if you did not already know about it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely would. Hey, did you see um, the big news? Uh, was it today or yesterday? I don't know. Um, we, with the rise in popularity of Uncommon Deeds, got Gravedigger back in the, the trending motorsports topics. And now Kevin Harvick. That's totally have a, what it was. A gravedigger paint scheme. Yep. Yep. That was from us. Episode six. They're like, and it's uh, not. It's not hard to believe when we look at how many listens it had. Yeah. I know. But no, That's that it. does. Uh, that looked like a pretty cool paint scheme. Yeah, I didn't hate it. I feel like if they're going to do that, it should just be. I think NASCAR should have more theme weekends. Oh yeah! Everyone's got to have like a monster truck theme, like Man. a monster mutt. Yes. Car and a earth Big shaker, foot. snake yeah. bite. Go old school. Black stallion. I'm for that. Now, so yeah. this week is different yeah. <laughs> than any week we've done it, it on is. a couple different fronts. Yep. First of all, we put out there, and we had planned to do to open it up to let you guys put in some questions for a future guest. And we do have a guest in mind that we want to do it with. Yep. But the way this week turned out and when we could talk to Austin, we advertised it well ahead of when we recorded it. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of give a dry run to the putting it out to you guys for questions. And we did get questions which we are planning to ask. And when I say planning to ask, that's the other part that's different this week. We are currently <laughs> recording this open, and we haven't spoken to Austin yet. It is right. Wednesday, June 16th, so two days before you're potentially listening to this. It is 9 p.m., and we have not recorded this week's episode yet. Yep. That means we a are, long Thursday for Tom. That is true. And we are currently in a holding pattern as we were supposed to start recording about an hour ago. As you said that, he, he texted me. So I think the wheels are starting to turn here and, and hopefully we'll be, we'll be on with him soon. But yeah, this one's kind of a jumping without a, without a parachute right now. So he's, he's on a business dinner. It's apparently it's going well because it's, it's running much later than he expected. We were supposed to be on at eight with him. Um, maybe so we'll probably... maybe we'll break some news in this podcast. Oh man! All right, fingers crossed. Yeah, but we are definitely looking forward to it, and we got kind of a lot of different angles we can go at when we talk yeah. to him. So should be exciting. So I mean, you know, at this point, and Tom always picks on me for being way over prepared on stats and history stuff and doing research on our to guests. be fair you pick on your every email you send me before an episode with stats yeah. it always says way too much 
but here it is anyway. Yeah. But like Austin Terrio has not been racing that long. You know, realistically, he started like less than 15 years ago. And I filled up four pages of stuff like in small print, single spaced. Like this kid has done a lot of racing in a very short amount of time. And he has experienced more in his young career than most drivers will ever get to do in 50 years. Highs and Um, lows. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, I don't know if we'll actually get to it um, in the show, but there was, I went through and watched all of his ARCA wins from 2017 and Donnie Richardson was his crew chief um, that year. And he said, and I quote, if there's blood in the water, if he can sniff the lead, it just turns up another notch and he just goes. And they had a, a Jack Bowser tribute paint scheme. This was at Salem Speedway in Indiana. They had a Jack Bowser paint scheme. And Donnie Richardson says, Jack Bowser was the original badass. And that kid right there is a badass. And that's a great friggin' quote. Yeah. It sums it up. That is yeah. a good quote. It's a good quote. It must feel great when someone can pull off that quote for you. So it's you're like, God, that makes me sound good. And I didn't have to say it. Yep. <laughs> I saw something similar today. I was reading about like Chris sale from the Red Sox is starting to throw again after like Tommy yep. John surgery. Yep. And they asked like one of his teammates, or I think it was actually a guy in triple a, cause he was just throwing a session down there. I said, what do you think about it? And he just told the reporter, the boogeyman's coming. Oh my God. I was like, that's badass. Gives you chills. Since we're talking about sports, um, I am a lifelong diet in the wool, blue Blanc Rouge, Montreal Canadiens fan. And they're on the verge of doing something here in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Losing to Las Vegas? What? Yeah, I know. But this is as far as they've gone in years and years and years and as good as they've looked in years and years and years. And I have lost complete touch with the NHL and with the Canadians. And I have no idea what's going on. And I couldn't name anybody except Carey Price on the team. And I am a terrible fan. And all these people are tagging me in tweets and Facebook posts. And I don't know what the hell to say other than go Habs go. So I feel bad about that. I'm a bad fan this year. That's fair. You know, I, I am admittedly only really a hockey fan come playoff time. That's fine. That's fine. But yeah, I was doing bad accents and a couple of guys at work, one guy from Massachusetts Bruins fan. And we got another guy on the crew who's a big Red Wings fan and hates the Bruins. And there was that stretch and they were rolling. And I'm like, dude. See freaking Marshand? Freaking. <laughs> fucking Pastanac putting in that hat trick, dude. And it was all fun until, you know, they got rolled by the Islanders. Yeah, totally rolled. Yeah, which is fun, too. As for <sighs> today's guest, I think we're getting close, so we yeah. can step aside now for Justin to introduce our guest. Our guest today is uh, one of the most popular young drivers to come out of the Northeast in recent years. Uh, He's the driver that everybody assumed was the next big thing and maybe still do, um, and for good reason. Uh, Things are sort of in limbo at the moment, but by God, he's already lived a life in racing 
much deeper and richer than than most people will ever see. Um, and we are excited to have on Uncommon Deeds, Austin Terrio. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, it's great to be with you guys tonight. So we usually kick this off just by asking you how motorsports came into your life. Well, motorsports was always, uh, I guess, a family affair. Uh, I didn't start racing till I was 13, but by the time I was six or seven, even before that, I was operating heavy equipment and uh, riding snowmobiles and dirt bikes and, and ATVs. Uh, also spending time with my dad, who was pulling trucks at the time. He, uh, I guess the family was always sort of well-known starting, I think, way back in 80, mid-80s, maybe late 80s for uh, having a truck called Ground Pounder. And they used to travel all across Maine and parts of New England to, to compete. So um, I was always at those events, you know, helping my dad out. So motorsports, for me, you know, the career-wise, it didn't start off as, as just NASCAR focused. It was kind of motorsports in general. And uh, through that whole time, uh, I had gone to Loudoun, watched quite a few races with my grandparents, spent the whole week camping out, um, had my had my favorite driver, which was Mark Martin at the time, and just kind of a casual fan. It wasn't until 2007 that uh, local, local racetrack next to me up in northern Maine, which was Spud Speedway, opened up because it had been closed mm-hmm. on and off for many, many years. Um, and it just so happened that I think that summer of 2007, it opened up again under new ownership and bought a piece of crap car. <laughs> I think that was, that was a, it was a bomber car. So it had a roll cage in it, but that was about the only thing that, that was good uh, w- with the car. I mean, it, was, it had a sucky motor and didn't handle very well, but that, the, that wasn't really the point back then. The point back then was just to get involved and, my grandfather uh, bought it for me. I think it was, I think he spent it 500 bucks or something on it. So it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of money, but it was the entryway into, into bigger and better things. It was also the entryway into kind of seeing the, the sport in a different way. So it's see, you know, seeing and being involved in the sport in that way, I think is important for, for a young driver you know, to have those experiences where they're driving into the corner, uh, on three wheels and they're, they've experienced a car that's not meant to go around circles. It gives, it, you know, it gives a perspective that I think is important for, for a young driver. So I'm fortunate to have had that. And, um, but at the same time, I'm also fortunate, you know, we started taking it more serious and, um, upgraded the, the cars and the equipment and stuff and, and went for it. But, Having both those realities at different points, I think, is is one of the reasons I, I I made it to where I ended up. So I've got a lot to unpack out of that, and I first want to start off with: at six years old, what kind of heavy equipment are you operating? Uh, like backhoes and front end loaders and uh, dump trucks. Mm. Dump, wait they, a minute, dump trucks at six years old? How is that possible, though? Well. Not, not on the, not like on public roadways and stuff, uh, just behind, behind the, the, the garage my father had and my grandfather had, which they worked, they worked out of. So they'd have like dirt piles and, um, 
I'm trying to think of just 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 stuff that's there that could be moved. So if dirt was in one pile, I'd try to move it to another pile. Just I wasn't really working and doing yeah. anything productive, but just learning and keeping busy. And uh, I, I thought it was I thought I thought I was working at the time. Like it seemed like it was it was work and it was fun. But just learning heavy equipment is is not like racing, but it's it's almost like flying, which I I ended up getting into later. But when when you're flying, you have to multitask, and when you're doing that, and you have like joysticks, and you have a, a brake pedal and a gas pedal, and you have other all kinds of stuff going on, it's it's like uh, it's a way of getting experience in in like a really high pressure situation. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that even though I started late, I was kind of a quicker study when I finally got into racing. I know I went to school in Bangor, Maine for college and I met a few kids from Fort Kent and they said, huge logging town, not much else going on. And a lot of French, French influence. I met some parents and I could hardly, they were from Canada, a lot of French influence. Yeah. Um, if you listen to like an early interview um, of kind of, I, I don't know if it was victory lane or driver introductions. I've, and I, I saw it recently, uh, my mother sent it to me of just me being interviewed. It's like how, how much growing up in that setting influences anybody that's there. So uh, family. I have my grandmother's Canadian, my mother's dual citizen. Um, everybody speaks, well, not me, but everybody mainly in the family speaks French and English. Um, so, so there's, there's a kind of a rich heritage there and it's, there's a lot of history. How it's much, certainly a lot of history. How much of your career have you spent just explaining how to say and spell your last name, Terrio? Well, it happens a lot. It still happens. I, I've, I've mainly given up really worrying a lot about that. I, I even, uh, when I'm talking to Siri on my phone, the, she, she pronounces it right. I don't understand why Siri pronounces it right, but nobody else can. Uh, I've had crew chiefs that I'm very close with that I've won championships with, and they still year, you know, years after they've many years after they've known me, they still don't, they don't, you know, understand how to say it. And, and part of me thinks that maybe people just don't want to put the effort into saying it. So they just sound it out because <laughs> you have to think about it. It, it. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's like it's spelled. So it, it's really not a big deal to me anymore. I, wow. uh, I find it funny. I remember listening to you. Uh, it was your ARCA uh, win at Daytona and they've got a different crew doing the radio for the ARCA series and the gentleman who was doing, I don't know his name. He was clearly older and you were Theralt and Theriault and Thoreau. And he said Terrio one time, just one time, but it was every lap. It was something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fun stuff. About the, about the closest you'll find is, uh, uh, Terriault or, uh, you know, Thoreau or something. Yeah. Yeah. But it's part of, I think it's part of, it's like, it's like leaving a school and, and ending up on the other side, on the other side of the country and can't expect people to, right. To know. Were you, um, were you traveling up to Canada? I mean, you're on the Canadian border. 
up there. Um, were you guys going to races up in the Maritimes at all? Early on, we, we the only, I guess, adventures into Canada for racing were with Tom Curley's tour. So the actor, um, they raced a lot in Quebec. So they had Chaudière, uh, St. Croix. Those are the uh, Valley. Yeah, Valley Junction was, was St. Croix. There's another track. It was like a, it was a, a trial of a track. Senair. Yeah. Senair. I've, I've been there before. And then, and then the only track, I think oh, there's two tracks on the East coast of Canada, which one of them would have been the IWK race. The, uh, um, trying to remember the track Riverside. Is that, yep. is that where the track is Riverside? Anaganish. And then, yeah. And, and and then, um, Speedway 660. Yeah. So Fredericton. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because Maine splits Canada, right? Kind of, uh, you have the English part and the French part and you have the, um, I'm trying, I'm, 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 I'm losing names here. Patrick LaPerles, right. Yeah. From, from Quebec and, and Donald Teague and all those guys that we used to race against. And then on the East coast, you have a whole different crop of drivers. Um, and it was almost like my experience there was you had the actor and then you had like the pro stocks mm-hmm. on the East coast. And, and, and there was, there was a rivalry a little bit, like they didn't no, nobody crossed. You didn't, you didn't see many drivers go from one to the other. Um, and uh, you, you, you know, the whole story, we used to encounter that a little bit just with pass and, and act, uh, I think 2012, 12, 13 and 14. I don't remember exactly the years when, when, when there was a shift at Oxford Plain Speedway, but it was like an earthquake had happened. Uh, Everybody was talking about it. It was a war. Yeah. yeah. And now they're best buddies and it doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense, but <laughs> all right. So, <clears throat> so you're banging around in a, in a Pontiac Grand Am and then a Dodge Neon and Mustangs and stuff like that. I mean, these are, these are junkyard cars um, at Spud Speedway, which, you know, I'm not knocking Spud Speedway by any means, but it is a backyard track. I mean, it is it is grassroots the way short track racing was 50 years ago. Um, how and, and not only that, it's the only track anywhere within two or three hours of, of that geography. So how do you get? from there two years later at Oxford and Beechridge in a late model. I mean, it seems like a massive leap even to think about, let alone accomplish. Yeah. So a local hero at the time for me, I think was Kurt Tebow. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, he's kind of a well-known racer from that area that we leaned on, I think from, from time to time, keep in mind, I'm, I'm, 13, 14, 15. So I remember a lot of the details, but a lot, but the other part is my dad would have conversations with, with these guys and I'd, and I'd be introduced and sometimes I'd have conversations with them. Um, I think my dad kept me out of some of the, some of the conversations. Cause I'm sure he was like, you know, who, who, who do we have to talk to? Cause at the time we were looking for a late model. I think Spud Speedway had, had started racing late models because they never raced late models initially um, that was kind of a class they brought in later on. And 
so everybody knew that if 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 you're going to be um, tour racing or if you're going to try to go to the next level, you probably need to start racing late models. And um, I don't remember exactly how, we, but we got connected with Doug Coombs. So Doug Doug had uh, Doug had the '57 car that he used to run at Oxford and a few other tracks in that area. I actually think maybe we saw him on on like the Uncle Henry classified. Uh, section the car was for sale possibly he was selling the 57 car and that that was a that was an old uh, jeff taylor car i don't know what year was built but it was it wasn't like the the newest stuff it was it was decent though we had some good runs with it but meeting uh meeting doug and and him opening up that door with jeff and we went down and spent some time with jeff taylor he set up the car and and, and i think we showed up at I don't remember what track it was for the first time, but it was, it was a whole different experience. That summer we met, uh, Mitch green. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember race basics. So, uh, Donna I'm trying to remember their last name. Smith. Da- yeah. The Smiths. So the Smiths had race basics and Mitch and, and Mitch was involved. And that was an Andover Maine, uh, not at the same shop they're at now. So uh, here it is. I- I'm new to this. All these new people I'm meeting, um, and Mitch, Mitch, Mitch was just a really good guy down to earth. And we felt very comfortable with him. It wasn't, I, 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 we didn't even know enough at the time to, to know anything technical. It wasn't about like who had, who had the best chassis, who, who had the fastest cars. We, we couldn't make that determination. Right. I think the biggest thing was who, who do we feel comfortable with? Cause we didn't know anything about those tracks, Beechridge, Oxford, uh, but everybody was telling us you need to rate, you need to start racing down there. And they kind of provided the opportunity, uh, setups and, and, and whatnot for us to start racing down there. And it was a, it was a hand, it was a real struggle at first. Not only did I not know what to expect, but to be honest, I think, I think Mitch and, and Mickey, I think Mickey green was involved. So Mickey, Mickey was actually, a, I think a mill working in a, in a, in, a, in mills. Mm-hmm. So he he used to race himself. Um, so Mickey is Mitch's brother, uh, sorry, brother Mitch's son. If anybody listening doesn't realize that, Mickey came on to crew chief me because I because the crew chief that we originally had decided he didn't want to work with us anymore. So this was like a nine one one like what are we going to do situation. Uh, I think this was 2010 or 2011, I, 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 give or take a year or two. So you got a rookie crew chief and a rookie driver and Mitch green is kind of the only person that kind of knows what he's doing at that time. Um, and that was our first, I guess, major experience with, with racing against, you know, Brian Hoare and, and some of the actor stuff. And we were in over our head, but the funny thing is I'm surprised with how quickly we learned. I always asked, everybody always complained that, that knew me even before I was racing. And they said, I asked too many questions. So I think that was a skill that came in, that came uh, in handy uh, during that time, because I asked a lot of questions. I tried to pay attention as much as possible. Mickey was learning, you know, we, 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 we grew together we gained our skills together. So I'm, I'm learning how to drive. He's learning how to set up. I'm also, 
I'm also a driver that likes to learn the technical side of it. And so we, so it was really a good combination. Now, by your words, you started late at 13 and now you're 15 in a late model going against grown men who've been doing it for a decade, two decades. Was that intimidating? I remember one of the first races at Oxford, uh, this must've been an act race and a heat race, or yeah, a qualifying race where I ended up getting in the back of Randy Potter. Like, I guess I drove it in too deep. It's probably my fault. I didn't think it was my fault, but it, it probably was. I didn't know what I was doing. I think I spun him out. <laughs> and so my first experience with these big, with these big guys is, is I have a driver that's mad at me and I'm not, I'm not normally, I was never really a dirty driver. Uh, every once in a while, you know, somebody was mad, but that's going to happen. But I didn't really have the reputation as being a, a, being a dirty driver. So it was kind of ironic that, uh, my first experience with them is here's Randy, Randy Potter was like a, you know, he was well known on the tour and I take out the guy like that. And so he, you know, I come in off the racetrack after qualifying, he's holding up his hood. He's like, I don't know what he, what he was saying. He wasn't, he wasn't very happy with me, but. Well, and he's, he's uh, built like a brick shit house too. So that's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, I was, I felt bad. I was embarrassed. I was mad too. Cause you know, nobody likes it when, when, when uh, you're accused of something. Yeah. Uh, but good experiences. And Tom, Tom Curley was, was a, was a good mentor. Uh, trying to think of who else, uh, the dra- you know, the dragons, Brian, Brian whore. I'm leaving people out, but there was for sure, for sure. Some, some good guys that guys and, and, and girls on the, on the tour that really kind of took me under their wing. You seem like a fast learner on that late model. Cause you won, was it your first race or second race or something in the, the spud One Fifty up there? Yeah, that was, I think my first ever late model race. Uh, we had done like a, quick test session right after I bought that car from Doug Coombs. So it was a 150 lap race and granted it wasn't like a actor quality race, but there were, there were some guys that came from Speedway 95, uh, you know, I think from Federal, uh, Speedway 660. So there was decent, there were some decent cars there. Um, I, I felt like I, I ran a good race, but I will say the car was handling really well. So uh, superior equipment in, in a lot of ways, probably, or at least comparable to, to what the other guys that were competing for the win had. We had luck on our side that day. <laughs> but did that change your trajectory or, or the mode of thinking? It, like, holy cow, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, it might have. Uh, you just reminded me. So I think Steve Perry was at that race hmm. from, uh, he has, he has that show mainly motorsports and, I remember watching mainly motorsports and he came up and you know, that, that was a, I guess a big deal. He interviewed me and we kept talking and I believe I ended up doing some, uh, super late model races with him and his car. He, he had at one point, uh, we didn't do very well, but once again, it's like just these doors opening and these people that we're meeting, I think it, it all, it all goes together. It's not, it's not just one person. It's not, it's not one person here, one person there. I think everybody in combination and every, every single thing that I did came together and 
whether it was the Spud 150 win or going down and doing some stuff with Steve Perry or, you know, knowing uh, Doug Coombs and knowing Jeff Taylor and, and Mitch Green and uh, Kirk Tebow, just a combination of everybody. And there's other people too. Scott Mulkern, I think that we, we met him soon after that. The whole culmination came together and that's why I – that's that's why I even had the interest, I think, to even pursue it. So I can't imagine that I would have wanted to pursue this or even had the idea that it was possible if I hadn't had so many people, I guess, involved or in our ear or talking to us or people that I knew. Right? If, if I hadn't busted that bubble uh, and, and got out of uh, Arista County, I'd, pro- I'd, I'd for sure still be there if I had just raced in, at Spud Speedway and, and, and I hadn't gone down in Oxford and raced a, an act race or met Tom Curley or gone to the Augusta Motorsports Show and met, I think, Mitch Green one year, then we we just, you know, the story would be totally different. So you end up joining the ACT Tour and your travel, and I got to imagine that's some long hauls from Fort Kent oh to some God, of these yeah. tracks and Thunder Road, especially. And we actually opened it up this week and we asked some of the people that listen to our show, if they had questions for you to send them in, and we want to sprinkle them in kind of as we go. Uh, Ray Flanders wanted to know what was your thoughts about running Thunder Road? I've never, well, Fast forward to, to now, I, I, I've never actually run on the track as it is right now. I yeah. I'm, I feel like I would probably miss the old track just based off of what I've seen. <laughs> I, I liked how there, you know, there's something about the wall not being there. I think people had more bravery to be able to go up and, and run different grooves. But may, maybe that'll come back someday. It was It was intimidating, I think, the first time I ran it. And not only that, but like you said, the drive, we had to think that the quickest way to get there from Fort Kent, Maine is to go through Canada on the Trans Canada and then yeah. come back through yeah. Vermont, I believe. Um, but anyway, the first race I ever ran there might have been the uh, was it Labor Day Classic, maybe sometime sometime in April. I want to say sometime in April, but I, I could be off. It was it was very it was intimidating. And then everybody was talking about the turn four wall and. You know how you got to stay away from it because I, I, I. So the point is, is I was driving, I was I was afraid of the wall because everybody was talking about how easy it is to, to get you know caught up in it, and, and um, but by the time the race was over, I I started moving up I think to the top, and that was really that was really fun to run up there, and you can get a nice run off of turn four. Uh, so one of one of my favorite tracks, though I will say that it was very frustrating because I had very good runs there and I had very bad runs there. And it just depended on uh, depended on the weekend we were there. Sometimes we fought the car. Sometimes maybe maybe I fought me. But just the whole just I don't think I don't think I ever I ever won there. I don't think I've ever won there. But come close a few times. But it was a great facility for sure. How um I I actually. Not sure how you'll answer this question. Was it easier or more difficult, do you think, to dive right into late model racing on a tour where you're not at the same track every week? You're learning everything over and over again every week from scratch. 
Well, it was more difficult, but it's, uh, I think it was more helpful. It was probably the right thing to do. So fast forward to today, like when, when a young driver asked me my opinion on what they should be doing, uh, if depends on how old they are, if they're young, I think there's nothing wrong with staying at a, at a track and, and just getting a feel for the, for the racetrack and just getting better and better and better and running for wins and championships at the local track. But if you're kind of at the age where it's time to start um, challenging yourself, though you might not be, you know, running for wins right off, you're, you're going to prepare yourself better if you're traveling and going to different racetracks. So I think we didn't, we didn't necessarily think about that at the time, but it was actually kind of a, a, a good it was a good thing that we slipped into it. Or it was a good thing that that's how the, that's how the outcome was. Because if I would have, for example, if I would have gone down and run a, a season or two at Speedway 95, you know, that would have, I would have been 16, 17. And though there wouldn't have been anything really wrong with it, I'm not so sure that I would be the driver that I am today because of, um, because of what I, what I wouldn't have seen. I wouldn't have seen all the different configurations of racetracks and the, the you know, different drivers you have to compete with every week. You have some local guys, you have tour guys, you have just, it's just, it's just like throwing somebody off the deep end and you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. And if you sink, if you have the right people around you, they'll dive in and get you and bring you back to the surface. And I think that's kind of what, what we did we dove off into the, in, into the deep end and I had enough people, good people around me to at least allow me to tread water while I figured out these racetracks and figured out the cars. So all in all, it was a good decision. And, and I, I don't regret that. Who were uh, some of the guys, especially maybe some of the other drivers who helped keep you afloat when you were sinking? I remember dragging quite a bit um, in the act uh, tour days. I'm trying to remember, you know, Brian was a teammate of mine and I think we, 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 are still good, you know, no issues there, but I think we had a different relationship before I, uh, before I went and drove for RPM, uh, then I, then after, uh, which is, which is natural. I mean, any, any teammate, I think goes through changes like that. When you, when you go to an organization and leave, I'm trying to remember, I feel like I'm leaving somebody really important out. Um, I want to ask Justin who, who, who you remember seeing me around at the racetrack, but I, well, you were up front for most of it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, well, right yeah, around but, uh, that era, you were probably racing with, um, well, Wayne Hallowell was probably just starting out on ACT yeah. at that point. I, I, yeah. Year. I remember. Yeah. So, so Wayne, I think Wayne and I battled for a championship and he, I think he ended up winning in 20, 13, I want to say, or 2012, 12, maybe. I think, yep, 12. Yeah, 2012. It was really close. Uh, I think that was the year. Was wasn't that the year that I ran for RPM? And then towards the end of the year, maybe I I, I went back and raced for uh, uh, the family team again, which was which was Mitch and Mickey. And I think the championship was fairly close there at the end. Um, well, it was actually it was 2011, the year before that, that you started off with with RPM and Rick Paya. And I did want to ask you about that. And I don't know if it's 
you know, a touchy subject, but I really, I don't know what happened there. What was that just a great driver and a great team not making, or, you know, not making the right combination or, or what happened? Cause it was, it all stopped mid season. Yeah. I, I really think, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to talk frankly about myself. I, because I encounter the reason the reason I'm not afraid is because I encounter it so much these days with with a lot of the young drivers I work with or coach or mentor, um, and everybody everybody feels like the grass may be greener on the other side of the fence. So we were learning the first half of the year before I w- was with RPM. You know, we were learning. Mickey was was a, was a young crew chief, didn't necessarily have the best of the best, didn't have the the biggest notebook and stuff. So you know, heck, uh, why not, if the opportunity is in front of you, why not race for basically the best team on the tour? So it, it appears like a, like a, a no brainer. And, you know, the experience, I think the experience was that, um, I still had a lot to learn as a driver, how to communicate and Mickey came along. So that, that was, that was, that was, the, that was a common denominator that we brought along with us, but it just didn't seem like between Mickey and 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 uh, and Rick that there that that there was a, you know a good trusting combination and and then for myself for some reason I, I wasn't able to be as fast as as uh, as Brian with the same setup and I think that's a real challenge and it's something I also see a lot where you know say a young driver comes in or any driver comes in and tries to run a setup that can be extremely, that can be a very difficult situation to try to work through for anybody. Um, especially when there's, when there's championships or wins that somebody can point to, like, for example, uh, Josh Berry down here runs, runs for junior motorsports and he can win. All, he's always winning. And when they bring other drivers in, sometimes it's a real, it's a real challenge for those drivers that have talent to go out and perform in with Josh's setup. So mm-hmm. if the team says, well, Hey, look, we're, you know, we're not going to reinvent the wheel here. It, this works. Well, sometimes it's, it's not always that easy. And I wish it was. I, and, 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 and I do a lot of, uh, I guess, optimization work with drivers to try to figure out where they're, where they're doing well and what they're leaving on the table. And, and sometimes it, sometimes it's basically driver preference. And so the point being this, the long story is that there's examples everywhere around us. If we look of people at the highest levels, really just not being able to perform and whether it's, it's the driver's fault or the team's fault or the crew chief's fault, it's just not a good combination. It's, it wasn't a good combination. And, um, and that also was a was a time where I think my confidence took a hit. So when I when we left and went back and, and went with the with the you know former team, the other 57, which which we always had, I think we just parked the car, we picked up fairly quickly and started running a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it's because I had something to prove. And I think same thing with Mickey. He felt like he had something to prove. I had felt I felt like I had something to prove. We went back and, and, and really focused on uh, improving what we had done before. I mean, you know, I, we, we got some advice for some, from some other people that were really helpful. 
and uh, and that's when we when we we be, we started to become I think a team that people were looking at as at least being competitive every week. I'm going to read some quick numbers for you. Um, in 2011, you ran seven races with RPM. Um, you failed to qualify once at Thunder Road, and you only had three top tens. I mean, and you you just you weren't even really that competitive with that with that red 57 car. You guys got <clears throat> back into your own car. You ran six shows, including Oxford, uh, the 250, and then the final five ACT races, and you were never out of the top five. Mm-hmm. So that's it was obviously a big a big change. Yeah, and 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 like I said, I, I I'm not hard on anybody in this conversation. I'm e- equally willing to admit that I didn't know everything, and I, there's a lot of weight on my shoulders. I could have made that situation better if I would have known more and had more experience. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to make tough you got to make tough decisions and 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 it wouldn't have looked very good if I would have left there and just kept running the same. Uh, fortunately, we, like I said, we, uh, we made some changes. We took a chance, decided, okay, let's try this again. And it, and it worked out fine. And through, through, through all that still very good relationships with everybody. So I think that's, that's important, you know, to look back on and even, even other situations with, with people that we've, we've left or people that have, have helped me. And it's always difficult to, you know, work with somebody and then have to tell them sometimes that, okay, now it's time to, to, to do something else or time to time to take another step forward. If I would be in, in their shoes, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to see a, a driver move on, but if I'm truly wanting that driver to move up and be successful, sometimes we have to let these drivers go, you know, and, you know, a lot of what I'm telling you tonight is kind of a mix of 27 year old Austin who is working with some younger drivers. Right. And so I'm able to kind of tweeze apart my story and, and, and insert my story into what I'm seeing now. And it, it's, I think I have a much more objective view of my whole story because of seeing the reality of Jesus, this how it must've been for us. You know what I'm saying? Like, were we this hard to work with <laughs> or, yeah. and that's, that's just the truth. Um, you don't know what you don't know. So it's interesting. You have a very profound way of looking back at it now through those experiences at that time, you're, you know, high school, maybe just after, and you're making huge decisions trying to point you in the direction to further your career, is it all on you at that point? Are you still leaning on family for advice? Or I can't imagine myself as like a freshman in college trying to to make these type of decisions on my own. I had actually uh, applied to several colleges my senior year of high school, so I had I and I was and I was racing obviously at the time, and we were doing we were traveling around on the weekends and it was, it was a, it was a lot. I had to choose between some sports and, uh, but the reason I brought up college is because really there was two different tracks. I could have gone down a whole different track and just gone down, gone to college and just kind of kept racing 
on the weekends as, as a, as a hobby. And a lot of people do that. And, and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I, I think that's, that's what keeps the short tracks going, to be honest. But I, I, I took the route of, of leaving for North Carolina. I think January after I graduated high school. So I think I spent the summer racing and then I decided to head to North Carolina and, and, and put off college. So the, the, to me that, that was a very, very difficult decision. Maybe it wasn't so difficult at the time, but I mean, that's, that's a big life decision for, for somebody to make. Um, Cause like, that's, that's the, that's the why in the road. Who knows what, what I would be doing now if I would have, you know, gone off and done the, and, and gone off the other path. But I ended up here and worked in uh, Keselowski's ra- uh, race shop. And he, he had a late model. I, I drove for him on the weekends and then would work in the shop during the week. And I got a little bit of a paycheck, but it wasn't much. But still a good opportunity. Met some met some folks. And, uh, you know, you asked me a question about my parents. Uh, everybody knows how difficult racing is. It's, it's a, uh, it's a sport that takes so much out of, out of families. And, you know, if there's not drama uh, uh, for one thing, there's drama for another thing. And it's an expensive sport. And, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them getting me started. And, you know, you just figure a weekend, a week, a weekend driving to a late model race, that's a big expense just to drive there. And then if you have to, if you have a car and you have a crew and so, you know, people, people need to be realistic about that stuff. And, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and it's the challenge that every, that every driver faces drivers that have plenty of talent, never really get beyond where they're racing. And, uh, as much as that really kind of sucks, it really, it, it really does suck. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, what, I don't want to say luck. Uh, it, people aren't necessarily born into it one way or the other. Cause I, I got plenty of stories of people that are friends of mine that didn't come from much money. They didn't come from a lot of uh, resources. They had enough to get started and their family raced or, or whatnot. Uh, but at the end of the day, they met the right people. So I, I think racing is a relationship sport and a, and a, and a, People, people say it's all about the money, and it certainly is. But I also think that you can't discount the relationships in the in the sport because relationships are valuable, just like money is valuable. Relationships have a value to them too, and sometimes that relationship is a money thing, is a is a it's a it's money thing or a sponsorship thing, or somebody's willing to invest in in a, in, in a driver's career, or a relationship is another door that opens because there was introduction an introduction made. So it's not it's not as black and white as people make it out to be. So I think everybody needs to look at it a little bit more fairly um, and realize that if it was as black and white as people make as people made it out to be, then you wouldn't have these stories of people kind of um, getting past the the odds that are against them. But it's not an e- it's not it's certainly not an easy sport either because if it was then everybody would be doing it, right you'd have all kinds of people that were that were trying to be that were trying to come and 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 and, and uh, find opportunities in Charlotte because there's not as many as there used to be mm-hmm. for sure but there's a lot of people with dreams and there's a lot of people that are trying to to just have a shot at it 
I don't want to get too far ahead, but are you still trying to have a shot at it? Well, you know, this, this is something I've thought a lot about during, during COVID actually. I think COVID was, it was a, um, defining moment for a lot of people and across, I don't care what industry you're in. It really brought a lot of people to, I don't say it to their knees, but it really made people really, uh, really just sit and contemplate what, what was going on. I had got hurt at Talladega in 2019. So I was racing the cup stuff. I had got hurt again. I was just kind of disappointed, uh, frustrated, you know, because I had gone many years since having something like that happen and had come back and won the ARCA championship with Kenny Schrader. And there was some good, there was really some good momentum going on. And then that happens. So I'm, you know, I'm at the point now where I certainly still feel like I have the, the, the talent and the capability and, and, and the drive to do it. Right. I think once you're, once you're a race car driver, it's very hard to take yourself out of that. Like you're always, if you're at the racetrack, you're always making calculations in your head. Like, well, if I was in that position, I would do this. And that's natural. And I don't think, I don't think there's any way to change that. Even if you remove yourself and say, you're never going to race again. You know, I'm not at that point right now to where I'm just completely fed up and done. I'm, I'm not, the, the weird thing is people look at me, they're like, oh, you must be so frustrated. I'm really not that frustrated. I, I, for me right now, it's about my health, right? It's about, uh, you know, getting to where I feel like I can go out there. And if I do have an opportunity to basically be hundred percent and I'm not going to rush that. If there's opportunities that come, I'll, I'll take them. And I've also, before I got hurt, was also doing a lot of driver coaching while I was doing cup stuff and while I was before that after I won the ARCA championship right people were coming to me for advice and guidance and coaching and and, and just all, across, all all over the board they were wanting help and and I had started doing that and that's that's really kept me um, especially here lately as I've basically you know I'm, I'm in a good place right now physically but that's kept me busy and it's kept me at the racetrack and it's uh I think it's a good way for, for me to give back to some what I've learned, all these hard, all these lessons that I've learned and, and mistakes that I've made and failures. Um, you know, I enjoy giving that back. And obviously I have to, I, I can't do it for free. So, it, so it is a business, but it's, but it's a good, it's a good business because it's, uh, it's something that I think the next generation of drivers need and they're not getting. And that's frustrating too, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation, but the next generation of drivers needs, they need, they need to make mistakes and, the, and, and it can't be, if it's too, if it's too easy for them, they're not going to learn the lessons that they need to learn. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we, all of us uh, as a sport, I think have to have to find the balance of, of helping somebody and, and, and picking them up and, making sure that they have what they need, like the tools they need. It's like, it's like a toolbox, right? You, you show up to the work, you show up to work and you want to have your, your, all the tools you need. You don't want to be thrashing around and trying to fix something with an adjustable wrench because you're only going to be able to do so much. What's well, the same thing with, with what I'm doing um, on the coaching side. But that being said, you can't, you can't be successful with a driver that hasn't gone through the dark times, I feel like, or the challenges just like I went through. 
if if a driver can go through those challenges and come out uh, come out the other side, they're going to be way better. Like look at look at Kyle Larson, look at what he's doing now. So in some ways, I'm not I'm not comparing myself to him, but in some ways, like these all all of these really cool stories of of, of drivers who have gone through the dark times and been successful in other times. That's the story that I think the fans also the fans want to see and they want the fans want to hear. Like that's the stories we need to be telling. It's not just black and white and vanilla. Um, I think that gets that gets boring after a while. And, and to be honest, I don't necessarily think that everybody's story is vanilla. The problem is not everybody wants to tell their story. And not everybody wants to be real. Paul Masidi wanted us to ask you, when you ran for Brad, how close did you truly feel you were to breaking through in NASCAR before the wreck in Vegas? Well, when the, when the wreck in Vegas happened, this is, this is 2015 if, in the truck. Yeah, series. this is 2015. If, if I'm looking at when that specifically happened, it happened at the best time of the year for me. So it happened at the time when I felt like I got, like I, I kind of dusted the cobwebs off because I, I hadn't raced. I had raced late models in 2014, but I had only raced. I'd raced like two ARCA races and three Xfinity races. So I didn't have a lot of big car experience at that time. Still went out, went out of Daytona and finished fourth or third, I think fourth to Tyler Reddick. I led a a bunch of laps at at that race um, in Daytona. And, you know, I'm going all these different tracks. So there's some good runs and there's some really challenging runs. And Vegas was kind of like, like I had, I had overcome a lot of the initial challenges and I felt like I was turning a corner. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was disappointing. It surely didn't happen at the right time. Um, and who, who knows what would have happened? I, I don't know for sure. I know I wouldn't have won the ARCA championship, but that's obvious though. I can't say for sure what would have happened if, if, if I, if, if I wouldn't erect, you know, maybe, Maybe I would be farther along. Maybe I wouldn't. It's hard. It's really hard to say. So that jumps ahead just a little bit, but I want to circle back to it. Um, you know, you ran with ACT in uh, 11 and 12, did some past stuff in uh, 12, 13, 14. And at that point you're driving um, Brad Keselowski's late model. Um, how did the truck deal come about? Because I can't imagine that that's an easy transition for a late model driver financially speaking to make in this racing climate in the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. I mean, was that purely a, you've got the talent we want you to have, we want you to have the seat or did you have to work in the boardrooms for that, that ride? Well, it was a, I want to say it was a combination of both. So between, between 2014 and 2015, uh, I had left Brad's late model program. It, it basically shut down, but the late model shop was, was next door to the, to the truck team in 2013. So I had built some relationships over there. I think Blaney was still in the truck in 2014. Ryan Blaney was still racing the 29 truck. So when, so when Blaney went and run and, and went to the Xfinity program at Penske, the 29 opened up. And so the plan was for it to be like an all-star truck. So Brad was going to run some, Blaney was going to run some, Lagana was going to run some. And I think uh, they had a 
one or two other drivers at, at some different configuration of racetracks. I still consider that as sort of my home, if that makes sense, because of the relationships that I had um, built up, like I just like I just told you. And, you know, they they reached out to me and they said, we we have I, I, I don't remember how many races we, we have, you know, these races open. Brad's going to do some. It's going to be an all star truck. And we have some sponsorship um, from Cooper Standard and and. So Cooper Standard was was a Keselowski sponsor at the time. And, you know, being frank, I had also had some other people that were helping me behind the scenes. So between the combination of all that, we we put that together. And that and that, and that's that's very standard now. That's how a lot of the deals work nowadays. Um even well, you had you even, had three Xfinity races for Dale Jr. as well. So that was in twenty. Yeah, that was in twenty fourteen. Right. So this is all sort of you're breaking into that world. Yes. Yes. But the the cool thing about what happened for me with Brad was that was really the first time that a team had said, "Look, we're willing to put some of our res- we're willing to put some of our resources in you." Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Especially yeah. coming off the junior deal. Yeah. Yeah. Al Maynard wanted to know after your wreck. What were the conversations like with Tyler Reddick after uh, and the success he's had since then and he's at the cup level now? Have you been able to stay in touch with him? Yeah, so Tyler and I were, were pretty close uh, that whole year and, and even kind of after that, um, you know, he – I know he, he, he felt bad, but it really was a racing deal. It was, yeah. uh, yeah. stuff happens in life. Like there's sometimes we ask ourselves, why did, why did this happen? And we really don't know. Um, if it, if it would have, if, if the timing would have been a little different, the results would have been different for better or for worse. So I don't, I'm very, I'm actually Tyler, Tyler is somebody that I consider, uh, a friend. I consider him a friend and he's got a lot of talent. <laughs> he's got a lot of natural talent. That's one of the things I, I noticed from him. You know, I, I felt like I had to study a lot more to be good, pay, pay, you know, pay a lot of attention and stuff. And I felt like Tyler, he did that, but Tyler has a lot of sort of just natural talent. And uh, so it's good to see him be successful. Um, and I hope, I hope he can stay there. It, 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 it's, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this as a fan of his, uh, but it's it's cool to see the people that you're close with be successful, even though you're you consider them competitors too. You know, I like I like I do like to see that there are some genuinely good people in the sport. I don't want to make this whole show about that wreck, but in that moment, on that night, what goes through your mind? Are you like, oh God, this is that's the end? I mean, is it, is it just a whole, you know, you're strapped down to the backboard in the back of the ambulance. You're like, well, everything I've worked for is done. Or, or were you positive about it? Well, I, I know I wasn't positive about it. I, I, I think I was mainly just confused a little bit. Like what, there was a lot of questions, not necessarily everything is done, but what, okay. What is like, what, what what everything was what what why what why what 
So, you know, between the, 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 the more challenging times I think was after that was in the weeks and months after that and years after that, just sort of living with the consequences of that, of the what ifs. Right. And. Are there any, are there any physical uh, problems lingering from that still? I mean, I think if you hurt your back, you always sort of have that no matter what. And, you know, if, the, if, if it's raining out, I can feel it. Yeah. <laughs> Just like they say, if you, if you break your arm or you break a bone, you feel it, right? But it's, um, I'm actually right, like right now, I'm, I'm physically like my, what, what I injured in that crash, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I hear a lot of stories of people that their outcomes, uh, uh, you know, a lot different. But the thing with injuries are can't compare them. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you hurt, if you had the same injury as I do, your, your outcome could, could be completely different than mine. You may not have any issues or you may have issues for, for the rest of your life. So, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to evade your question. It's just sort of like, it depends on when you ask me. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It depends on where you ask me. Do, do I feel like I am physically right? Um, trying to think of the right word. Do I feel like I'm strong? Like is my is my this part of my body as strong as it was before? No, it's not as strong. Um, do I have to keep myself in shape more than I would have? Yeah, but there's plenty of athletes that play, that deal with injuries. Sometimes that people don't even know about. Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna press on that too. The injury that you talked about at Talladega in 2019 was very hush hush, and it was only listed as an upper body injury. Was that related to that truck crash from four years ago, or was that something completely different? Or if you don't want to talk about it, that's it, fine. It, but it was, everything was very I, vague. Yeah, I. I I feel like it was, it wasn't related to that. I feel like it was different. Um, it was, it was basically a, a really bad concussion. Mm. So, you know, I, it was my, that was my first sort my first real experience dealing with that. So I didn't know, I didn't have any reference point. Uh, certainly in some ways it was a horrible experience, but also a very educational experience because it's something that I think needs a lot of work, meaning in, in okay, I'm, I'm talking general now about sports. I didn't realize how much, uh, how much, how many, sorry, I didn't realize how many people are, are uneducated or are, don't have knowledge and uh, even medical professionals about stuff like that. And so here, here we have athletes, whether it's a, you know, a football player on a baseball team at, at his local high school or a college player or whatever, an injury like that where you can't see it is so it's, 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 it's very difficult to describe what, what that's like. And uh, I don't have a, a dice in front of me. I have a, I have some keys, but like if, if these keys were, were, were to like a set of dice, I felt, I felt like for me, from a knowledge standpoint, your the possibility that you're going to, you're going to get the right care initially you, is like rolling the dice. 
meaning you know once you're cleared once you're cleared of like some something major you're you're not bleeding right your brain's not your brain's not bleeding what happens after that is very important uh i mean i'm telling you guys a lot but what happens after that's very important and very critical like the months and and stuff after you have to be proactive you have to be you can't be reactive you have to be proactive you can't sit and wait you have to you have to challenge yourself dale junior was very vocal about that and if it, i mean if it wasn't for him i can't imagine where we where we would be at now mm-hmm. and i'm complaining now so i don't know if that tells you anything um so the just in general how important it is to to get people that have the the newest technology with their the newest information and technology on how to treat that stuff is the difference between somebody being out for you know months or years so it's it's crazy how i think it's crazy but also good because i feel like people are people are people are realizing that there's so much more available out there you just have to go looking for it unfortunately if you're not a a proactive person and you're not somebody that knows how to do research or knows how to be uh, accountable for yourself then i'm sorry but you're you may not have the outcome that you want it's definitely interesting as in i coach high school basketball i need to take a concussion course i think it's every two seasons you take a new concussion course and like with high school athletes it's any shot to the head any remotely odd behavior or if a kid tells you they got a headache after getting hit they're done you're pulling them out and they're going through you know the protocols and taking the tests and at least it seems like on that level it's getting far more proactive yeah it, it is and and I'm not and I'm not saying that to be negative I'm I'm saying that that is like the immediate I feel like that's the immediate stuff that's come such a long way the problem is is what happens after that like there are things that can be done you know exercises uh you know, uh, I'm not going to get into into it too much, but different supplements and different ways you can take care of your body, different ways you can take care, different ways you, different ways even before you get injured that you can take care of yourself. There's not a lot a lot of education that that goes on, and it's unfortunate. And even from a medical practitioner standpoint, it's all over the board. Do you have any lingering effects of that? I mean, I'm. I'm, I still, I'm not in a position where I'm, I'm ready to race. Like I told you, I want to be, I want to make sure I'm hundred percent. And the other big thing too is, so I have, what I have to also weigh is opportunity versus the cost or not, not, not financial cost, but just opportunity and, and what that could cost risk COVID. Like I said, COVID was sort of, uh, I think a great time for everybody to think about what their life was up to this point. You know, kind of off that and obviously looking probably farther into the future, Luke Rickson want to know if we'll ever see you race in the Oxford 250 or maybe a Milk Bowl again. It was probably more likely that I'd race in the Oxford 250 again. Um, I don't know when. I actually just sold my uh, sold my late model that I built in 2016 to 
Charlie Sanborn. Really? Who's yep. So I don't know. I think you may know who Charlie is, but originally I was going to let him use the car, but I worked out a really kind of good deal for him to where I'm like, just, just buy the car and, and that way you own it and you can, you can do what you want with it. Um, so I don't ha- I don't own any late models right now, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of, which is kind of weird, but it's also a little bit freeing because either I can build another one or I don't have to build another one. I, I, I there's nothing more than I hate than having a race car sit. Getting older. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. being used. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's so many out there that, you know, it's like you can build one or rent one or somebody lets you borrow one. Um, I don't like seeing them sit because that's a seat for somebody to be in. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's get out of the, the darkness for a second. And, uh, you know, you had the wreck at, at Las Vegas in 15 and the world sort of fell apart for you for a few minutes, but, um, you came back in 16 and, you know, people would argue that it was a step down, um, to the K and N schedule. And, um, but you had a great team under you with Hattori and I know that it ended abruptly. Um, but my God, you hit the ground running with that thing. Yeah, we, we didn't win, but we had some really consistent races, um, went through a few different crew chief changes and stuff. See, that was an example of a step down, but also a step up because, uh, well, because of coming off of that challenge at the end of the year, but also the, 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 the sponsorship, um, opportunity that she, that Chigiatori had, I sort of just fit into that. Like they called me, which once again, it's, if anybody's getting called these days, it's pretty, it's pretty frigging cool. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the reason that it ended up abruptly <laughs> because, you know, uh, maybe, I think maybe somebody else came in with a, with a sponsor or with some, with some funding and, you know, that was, the rest was history, but for, the six or seven races that we did, you know, I was able to get back and get some, get some seat time and get, get some confidence back. And, and that prepared me for, uh, for 2017. And that was, you know, 2017 was, it's never going to be repeated at least in the ARCA level. I mean, and, and how did that come about? Did you get called from Ken Trader or did they, you know, did you call them and say, what do we got to do? Or I met, I met Ken Trader at the PRI show in 2016 at the end of the year um at the end of the year well yeah yeah so going into 20 so yeah isn't it that pri is in december yeah sure so december of 2016 going into 2017 i'm i i just walked through him in the hallway and we bumped into each other and i i introduced myself to him and uh you know, he knew a little bit about me and he's like, you know what, come by, I'm going to be back in Charlotte next week. Come, you know, come by. We, uh, we, we may have some stuff, we may have some, we don't have anything done for next year. Come by and talk to us. And once again, collectively, I, I was excited because it's like, here's a full-time opportunity that I never had to run full-time. I figured, I figured if I could put together just like I did in the act tour, Remember, like the consistency. If I could put that together on a national level, I could. I I I'm, I wasn't thinking about the championship at the time, but I felt like there was something there. And 
you know, between some really, really, really um, great mentors behind the scenes who both inspirationally and also financially helped and Kenny's federated auto parts and some of the other partners he had over the years, that deal came together really quickly. Yeah. If you met him in December and you're yeah. in victory lane at Daytona in February, that's a pretty short turnaround. Yeah. No, I was, ma- I was making calls. He, you know, Schrader was making calls. That's the thing. Like I had sh- just in that short period, I had Schrader making calls on my behalf for people that we both, that we both knew. And I'm like, Kenny, I, I need, you know, I need you to make a call to this guy because he really likes me, but he, I think he'd be impressed if you called him and he looks up to you. So we really work together on it. Dominance, not even the right word. I mean, and I feel like Arca can be sort of a crapshoot and I'm not disparaging Arca by any means. Um, Cause there's some absolutely talented people there, but you've got a lot of pay to play racers that come in trying to get noticed you run one race and then you're done. Um, in fact, that happened with you with Venturini uh, briefly mm-hmm. and you won your first start. But um, th- I think that the big secret is Kenny Schrader's team is a very low budget operation and he's well known because he's Ken Schrader, but you guys grinded through that year and you got it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think we, and I'm not saying this to disparage any any of the other teams because they they worked hard too, but we had an interesting group of people, to where I don't think anybody was was any nobody's ego was so high, to where it didn't allow for feedback and, and constructive ideas. So I came in with some different ideas. Donnie had a great foundation that that he built donnie was the crew chief um phil was the kind of the car chief guy that did a lot of the work on the cars and and then we had some we had some kids you know young kids you know not make i'm sure they weren't making much money but the the point being is we we knew that we didn't have everything figured out but i guess we kind of identified a couple things and i said look we need to maybe let's just start here and, and let's fix some of these areas and we'll see how we do. And then we, we won at Daytona. Keep in mind that I, none of those ideas that I had went into Daytona. So that was all Donnie and, and just that, that was a really good car. And I had a lot of, I had good experience on super speedways too. Like all of my truck, my truck runs there at Daytona. I had a shot to win, I think almost every time and led laps. So I had I was re- always really good at those tracks, but when we started going to some of these other races, short tracks and intermediates, mile and a half, so I'm like, okay, well, we really we're, we're we're not quite where we need to be, and we're off. And so we went to work, long hours, and just you don't really see that anymore. You don't see that driver, crew chief, back. You know, I hate to say backyard, but like the tools that we had weren't we weren't working. <laughs> we weren't working with the same sort of technology that some of the other teams had, but what we, but what we did have was some relationships and, and um, experience and 
and uh, and and the lack of ego, and will be willing to try different things. That's what really helped us. You have that success, and you win on every type of track. You're winning on the road course, everything. You get that championship. Did you think at that point that there might be more opportunities coming your way after that season? Yeah, because I thought, based off of what happened to Chase Briscoe the year before, I thought that there was going to be some some more uh, sort of uh, doors and opportunities that, that would have opened. And there was a few, but you know, the, you know, the way racing works is it's, it's like a wave coming in and out. You know, you have the, you have the wave building and let's say the, let's say when the wave builds, all these opportunities are building and then they, they drop down and the wave disappears for a little while. It's like some, some years, there some years are, there's a drought. And I, I, I think what happened was they're just, the moving parts didn't quite come together and some, some stuff was filled up between 2016 and 2018. So I just kind of missed out. Let me ask you this. In your opinion, do you think the ladder system still works as intended in 2021? Well, I, I don't know. I think that the, that's a complicated question. The Like the ladder system, the ladder system is totally different than it, than my understanding. Like before I was born, the, the way it used to work, I'm not so sure that there's sh- the people have a misunderstanding. I think of the ladder system because what's best for the industry or what's best for racing is not what's best for the drivers that are trying to make it. What's best for racing is that the drivers uh, build their fan bases up and race local racetracks until they're much older and get, you know, getting some fights and getting some crashes and get a reputation, good or bad, and then come on the national scene. That's what's best for probably, I mean, I, I'm not a expert. I'm not a, I'm not an all seeing eye, but that's what's best for the sport. But at the end of the day, that's not convenient for us because of how expensive racing is and how sponsorship, you know, dependent racing is. There's not a huge return on investment for somebody that's racing at a local uh, at a local track. So how long can you support yourself doing that until you can get national TV time on the radio? So so there's there's really a disconnect. And I, and I don't know how that uh, how that's going to get addressed or how it's going to get fixed. All I can say is that, in general, one of my thoughts was was that the the, the grassroots level can't be ignored, and I, I don't know if it's going to take NASCAR or, or another sanctioning body, or 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 a, a combination of people coming together and saying, "Look, how can we invest in short track racing?" Because short track racing is like the foundation, and if the foundation is not healthy, then I'm not so sure how the rest of it's going to be able to sustain itself. So the, there needs to be an effort, I think, to sort of till the soil. It's like when you're planting a, on a, uh, planting potatoes, you can't just plant and plant and plant and plant and plant. After a while, the nutrients in the soil are going to be gone. 
and the plants are not going to grow anymore. So it's like that in racing. I think the grassroots level, short tracks, drivers, there has to be a big investment in, in their success in order for it to be, in order for it to help sustain what we're all trying to do. Like we make, like all of us are sustained by making a living down here, the way the money flows, but it wouldn't happen if there wasn't a grassroots level of, of racing. So we have to be very careful with that. You know, that's um, your answer there makes me think of um, how important it is, like you said, for a driver to build a fan base locally. And I think of two huge examples, um, Ricky Craven versus Joey Logano. Ricky Craven is known as, you know, Maine's, Maine's boy uh, before you came along. <laughs> but, you know, Ricky is Ricky's the top of the mountain as far as that goes. Yeah. Ricky won a cup race. I didn't win a cup race, but well, he, yeah, but, Rick, Ricky, but he, but he was not just from Maine. He was from new England. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he carried like the, like the new England Patriots. They've got fans in all six States. Ricky Craven raced ACT and Bush North. And he built that fan base for a few years. Joey Logano, you know, it says Connecticut on his, on the back of his cards, but, you know, he raced Connecticut. He raced go-karts in Connecticut. You know, nobody, nobody knew a thing about Joey Logano until he got to the cup level. And they were like, Oh yeah. He ran go-karts at Thompson for a couple of years. Like big deal. He doesn't have a fan base up here other than, you know, maybe people realizing long after the fact. And one of the coolest deals that I've seen in recent memory was when the state of Maine sponsored your car. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, I can't think of any other drivers that have had that type of a relationship. Yeah, that was a kind of a defining slash interesting moment for, for all of us filled with a little bit of controversy, but you're always going to have controversy in, in the, in the public light if you're, if you're involved in anything like that. But you know, talking a little bit about Ricky, I'm glad you brought him up because that's that's another person that very fortunate to you know be able to call him a mentor and a friend. So, did you want me to talk a, a little bit about the, the that main sponsorship because that that was interesting how it all came together. Um, it was a combination of public money and private money, so there was like some tourism money involved in that. Right. We were, I think we ran Kentucky. Yeah, we ran Kentucky with it. But it wasn't all to what people thought it was. There was also some private money involved and right. and some businesses that came together to make that happen. Um, and there and it was actually kind of spearheaded. I won't say who, but it was spearheaded by uh, you know a very successful business owner from Maine, who who thought it was it would have been smart for for everybody to get together and try to promote that. So, you know, I'm I'm fortunate to say that. I had Maine as a sponsor. Was it Stephen King? <laughs> no, I don't think he would have been in support of that. <laughs> no. Uh, I've got an idea of who that might have been. Um, and I won't say the name either. But um, but you but that you had literally a state riding on your on your back and riding on your shoulders. And you feel that um, I don't know if it's pride or pressure um being a guy from up here because you know there's so few 
people from this region of the country that, that even get a sniff down there. Um, and to have you as an ACT and a pass guy, um, you know, you're from Maine, but you're, you're representing those two tours. Um, does that weigh on you? It, I mean, it did. I, in some ways I felt like I was lucky. I, I'm, I, as you're asking this question, there's a lot going through my mind. In some ways I felt like I was very lucky. It's like, well, you know, I, I could picture myself, somebody saying, you know, Austin has a lot that he should be thankful for. And, and that, and that's completely right. That being said, at the end of the day, I challenge anybody to compare themselves to what I did behind the scenes. And in terms of the small, the, the, the group of people that, that could have been right. That may have been, or could have been, or should have been. I, I just, I, I challenge them to really look and, and dive into, did they turn over every rock? You know, I felt like I turned over every rock. So when you turn over every rock and you also have the right people and situation and, and all this other stuff, that's more that there's more of a recipe for success there. I I've seen people and I'm not going to name names, but I've just seen people who are quote lucky burn out and never, you never hear from them again mm-hmm. because they're not willing to work behind the scenes and not willing to turn over the rocks and not willing to meet people and build relationships. So, you know, I, I think that has to be taken into account. So um, long story short, I'm, I'm humbled. Um, and I felt like I did, like if just looking at my social media following, I had, I, I had more social media following before I, I think I went truck racing than, than, than the amount of people I gained when I was racing NASCAR. So I had already come with some, now I'm not saying I'm anything like Ricky, but, um, I, it feels good knowing that what I told you early on was basically that if it wasn't for me traveling around and racing against these guys, if I would have just went to Charlotte or went to Mooresville from Spud Speedway, I would not have had near the experiences or failures that would have taught me. You'd, how be, to, back, you'd be back at Spud Speedway. Well, I'd either be back at Spud Speedway or I would, I would have, I'd have a the whole different reputation. Yeah. I'd ever, I'd have a reputation of probably being entitled and lazy because I didn't, you know, I didn't spend time with the veterans and learning from them and making mistakes and having to work in the shop and live in campers and, you know, do that stuff. That that's, that stuff's super important. I think for, for people, for drivers, if they, if they do want to be known as somebody that's, deserving of, 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 of an opportunity. Um, now everybody's story is going to be different and not everybody has to have, has to, you know, do this and they, they don't all have to match, but there has, I think there has to be success and failures and, and, and effort and being willing to do things that other people won't because otherwise, otherwise then, you know, NASCAR or racing in general will, will just continue to get the reputation of just being a sport where only the, uh, 
I'm trying, I'm trying to be nice, but <laughs> of only being the, a sport where, where, where um, you know, wealthy people can make it. Mm-hmm. But I think right now there's, there's still hope. There really is. Um, and it's sort of like it can go either way. One more question for you, and then we'll hit our quick hitters and let you go. Um, I'm just curious because you seem to have a pretty good view kind of from the outside looking in. Justin and I talked about this a few weeks ago. When you look at F1 and they put out this show on Netflix and it's awesome and it has people like Justin and I watch and it draws us in and it got us interested in F1 and we didn't know anything about it and they're building these young stars on this Netflix reality show and you see a NASCAR not really going in that direction at all with so many young guys with big personalities. Do you think there is that avenue for them to help themselves by building these younger stars as opposed to always seeing, you know, your Harvicks and your Kozlowskis and these same guys every week? is to make something where we learn more about younger guys? Well, throughout all these years, I've, I've had to kind of be my, be a marketing person, be a driver, be a marketing person, be a seat, you know, business owner, president of your race team, whatever. I had to sort of put on all these different hats. I think the point you're trying to make is, does it, does it make sense for, for the sport to make a big investment in telling, telling more stories like down earth stories, personal, like personalize the drivers. They're not just people that show up with their helmets and put in and go racing because if that was the case, then I don't think there's a really other than the race product, there's really no reason to to watch. And now that's an argument I've had of, okay, guys, maybe we're focusing too much on the cars and and what parts are in them and worrying about how big the spoiler is if the fans have some reason to be emotionally attached to the drivers i can guarantee you that they're not going to be complaining on twitter because the cars are not not close enough or too close by you know that's when people get that's when people start really picking apart the product is if the the emotional connection with the drivers are lacking because there's nothing else to hold it together when when i was a fan and mark martin was my driver i was not worried about how close the race was at the end i was focused on mark martin like where where was he running where where, where did he finish like what was going on with the car what, what 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 was he complaining about what was he saying it wasn't about how big the spoiler was and trying to you know create all kinds of stuff uh, trying to spend so much time on the, on the product. And, and, and I think that's where Twitter sometimes and social media can get way out of whack because you're, you're taking a small vocal minority of people and giving them, making them sort of the face of what you think people want. And that's, and that's never true. It's just like that in politics. But anyway, um, so what I would do is, everybody's going to make money. I, I mean, I get it, but the drivers, if, if, if the series, w- w- you know, wouldn't do it, then the drivers should, should come together and figure out how to 
how to basically work together to tell their story. And, and there's not a lot of that. Like there's NASCAR does some, but I don't think the drivers work together enough either. You know, it's like if, if, if the drivers are going to Texas, right. They need to have a, they need to have an agreement within all the, within the drivers to where, okay, you know, this week you, you, and you are going to go to that local short track next week. You, you, and you are going to go to that local short track. Thank you. And, you know, I, I understand everybody has responsibilities, but if somebody, somebody's going to have to put that in motion. And I think, um, I, 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 Tom Curley comes up. We need more promoters that know how to promote at the low, at the short track level, all the way up to the top. It can't just be people that think they know what the fans want because somebody on Twitter's mad because the race wasn't close enough. That's not the voice. Of, I don't. I personally don't feel like that's the voice of, of number one. That's the voice of reason, or number two that that's the voice of the fan that you've lost. The only issue is what happens with the fan that you've lost. How how can you get them back? So you're you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. In order to get somebody interested, maybe you do have to work on your your tra- your your product to make it exciting. But really, if we're trying to get to the core of it, right, the core and trying to fix the core of the problem. It has to start with the drivers. It has to start with the even the teams or the the emotion behind it. There has to be an emotional connection. It's really hard to be emotionally connected to a car. Like the only emotional connection you might have is is manufacturer loyalty. That's about it. Other than right. that, it's 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 people and 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 do you feel connected to your to the driver? I, uh, that's, that's why you turn in. That's why you tune in to, to watch the race. It, if, you know, some people can't, I used to cancel commitments that I had when I was in elementary school so I could watch a race. Mm-hmm. Not because I, I was not because I, like I said, not because I cared how many lead changes there were because I wanted my, I wanted to be connected with my drivers. I had a theory a few years ago that, Chip Ganassi, the biggest disservice that he ever did was to limit the short track racing that Kyle Larson uh, could participate in. Mm -hmm. Think of the cities with short tracks that are next to a target. You know, how many missed opportunities were there for him to have that big red target symbol on the wing of his sprint car at a dirt track in God knows where, Iowa? You know, why is that not part of the sport? Why, why are they not, if they're looking for return, well, if you bring 5,000 people in for an autograph at a target, I'm guessing a few of them are going to go buy some groceries or t-shirts or something inside. Mm -hmm. Um, It just seems like a no brainer. So you get on that and change the sport, please. (laughs) Well, last time I checked, nobody was, nobody was asking me about that stuff. So (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in, I'm sort of in my own, little world and affecting what I can affect that that's the, uh, that's the other problem with, with, uh, things in general. It's like everybody has these really big ideas and, and that's great. But if, if all of us really just focused on doing the small things that we, we we actually can change around us. And even, even in our local short track or our, uh, the people we know and the series that we're a part of, we would change the whole face of racing. Mm-hmm. 
the problem is we get we get all caught up in these big ideas because we think we want to change the world and and the problem you know then we then we can't do anything and we miss out what's right we miss out on what's right in front of us does that make sense yeah 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 definitely yeah all right all right let's uh i'd vote for him yeah (laughs) i may run for congress one day though (laughs) i knew that about you i i I knew that you have an interest in politics for sure yeah i'm still waiting for carl edwards to announce his candidacy for for senate that i keep hearing about right (laughs) well we got a few quick hitters and then we'll let you go and thank you for giving us so much time and late in the evening nonetheless uh first one who is one of the most underrated drivers that you ran against maybe someone who didn't have the big flashy name but you thought god that guy can drive or girl he's thinking can we come back to that one yep yep um my question that I usually ask is what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a race car. But we just got a question in the middle of this interview on Instagram from Heather Obi, And it's a great question. If you could race anywhere one more time, what track would you choose? Iowa got taken off the NASCAR schedule. Um, I always enjoy going there. It's, it's got a lot of character. It's a, it's a short track. It's a, it's kind of a short track mixed with a intermediate track, multiple grooves, rough, kind of wore out uh, arrows a little bit of a factor, but it's not, it's not going to, you know, it's not a huge factor. So it's kind of like the perfect racetrack that if, if we could build more of them, you know, model them after kind of that racetrack, I feel like um, people wouldn't complain as much about the racing at the mile and a half. I'm curious when you see all these NASCAR guys getting a chance this year to run on dirt, does that, tickle your fancy a little bit when you see the trucks on dirt or the cup guys on dirt? Well, I, I tell you racing on dirt is the most fun I've had in, in a, in a, in a stock car. I raced two dirt races in 2017, ne- uh, tested a uh, dirt car, tested traders, dirt, dirt modified before that. And it's some, it's certainly a great learning tool for a driver. Like if, if I could do it all over again, I would have mixed dirt racing in, early on. So, um, I'm all for it. It's, I, I'd like to do some, some more dirt racing, to be honest. If, if it would, it would be something that I'd like to do at some point, um, in the, in the future. And our uh, last question, what's the best race that you remember seeing as a fan in person? In person. So I'm going to have to cheat a little bit on this one. Cause, cause I'm going to classify in person as, uh, as on TV. So I, I remember it was at 2007 Daytona 500, I think was that, that was when Mark Martin and Kevin Harvick, yeah. um, were basically door to door coming, coming off turn four for the Daytona 500. And I, I'm still in shock <laughs> after that, after that one as, as to how uh, that slipped away from Mark, but one of the, you know, just one of the better races that I remember, I remember watching. Have you, have you met Mark? Do you know him at all? That, no, that's kind of, that's a interesting thing. We, you know, we've, we've communicated on social media, Mm -hmm. some back and forth, but I've never actually met him. 
he was, he was, you know, he was gone when I sort of, when I came on the scene for basically. Yeah. Um, and he's not around much. Yeah. No, he's not. He's, he's not, he, he sort of just left and I don't blame him. You know, he should try to enjoy his retirement. So going back to your uh, initial question, you know, that's, that's a, that's a really tough one. Once again, I, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say that I'm not going to answer your question because I feel like there's, there's a lot of drivers that I, that I see that you don't even know the names of that I feel like have a ton of talent. The, the unfortunate part is nobody knows who they are. So my, so w- what I, w- what I'll say about that also is my goal is to change that for, for, even if it's one person. So if I can help, if I can help one of these kids make, make a right decision or connect with somebody they need to connect with, then I'm, you know, it's not all on me, but I, I feel like I want to change that for one person um, so that they can look back and say, you know, I I had an opportunity and and made the best of it. Well, and I was going to ask you, as we close up here, what is next, but what's going on currently for you? And I think that leads into what your answer will be. Uh, right now I'm just focused on driver development work, driver coaching, um, working one-on-one with some drivers, working one-on-one with a few, well, one-on-one with a few different teams. I'm going to be headed to Pocono next weekend, um, helping somebody in an ARCA race, uh, truck race as well. So this summer is really hectic because I'm. I, what I'll do is I don't just focus on one level. So I have different drivers at different levels, and I'll also spend time like at the at the at the very entry level, like legend car racing, because you because I I never know who's coming and who's going, and I and I and I felt and I realized recently that for me, like if I'm trying to help somebody be successful, trying to give them some skills that they can take the best time to find somebody and, and to make sure that they're not uh, creating bad habits for themselves is actually when they're younger. So say 13, 14, 15, 16, because it's a lot easier to, to um, help somebody learn the right things versus change bad habits when they're, when they're coming into Arca or trucks or Xfinity. And it's frustrating when I see that, because it happens a lot. You have people that all of a sudden they show up and it's like, you don't know this. Shouldn't you know this if you're at this level? Well, nobody told me or nobody taught me is, is sort of the answer. So the point being is people have to be way more serious. And I'm, and I'm kind of committing myself to be more serious about helping people uh, at the at the lower levels so that they're ready whenever they get an opportunity. And that might take me behind the wheel. You know, that might uh, when when I when, you know, I feel like I'm 100 percent. You might see me behind the wheel, um, but for me, I'm committed to making sure it's the right opportunity, and it's and it's worth it's worth the risk. Obviously, I'm not just going to put myself in a situation where there's not a lot of upside for me, you know, both career wise or financially. All right, and we, if, we got to put food, we got to put food on our tables, right? That is so. true. <laughs> and if people yeah. want to keep up with you and what you're doing, where can they follow you on the socials? 
they can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook uh, at Austin Terrio. And I've been posting, you know, every once in a while, I'll go a, a week or so without posting, but people can generally see if I'm at a racetrack or if I'm helping somebody, um, you know, if, if things come together and I'm able to put some racing together for myself, you'll see it on there too. So pay attention. And um, I always appreciate people engaging with me and commenting on, on my posts. I, I try my best to respond back, but um, sometimes I'm too busy working. It's a good excuse, actually. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, listen, uh, you know, for our listeners, it's not midnight, but for us it is. And we appreciate you taking the time here because this is, uh, you know, this is a this is a good one. You were high on our list and, um, you know, I know that you were you were busy tonight um, and to take the time at, at we started recording at what, 10, 15. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thank thank you guys again, Justin and, and Tom. Uh I'll, I'll just say this is the first time that I've, I've I can say I've started a podcast on Wednesday and finished on Thursday. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. it's first it's solo oh, two right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks again, guys. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you one more time to Austin Terrio as we are wrapping up this week's episode, and we are. This is the first one we've really kind of done in succession. We did the open. Yeah. Before we did the interview and now we're doing the close right after doing the interview. What was the other one that we did? Uh, Dwight Jarvis. We did the open just after the interview and then the yeah. close just right. So but this one we we did in order. Yeah. With a little more of a gap between the open and the interview than we were expecting. Yeah. <laughs> uh but hey. That's all right. Yeah, it's it was a good one, and yeah. you mentioned it when we finished. You could tell a lot going on upstairs for that guy, a cerebral, cerebral yeah. guy, as you said. Yeah, and um, I ran into Austin on pit road at a race in South Carolina, oh, maybe 2014, and he did not have a lot going on, and he was – he was there. This was a late model race. And um, he was there to build the relationships that he's talking about. He was there to volunteer on a race car or two race cars or three race cars or whoever needed a help, you know, that night. And he didn't show up with an agenda other than to say, hey, I'm Austin. If you need a hand, you know, here I am, hoping that it would pay off for him down the road. And I'd say it's just paying off for him. Yeah. And you can tell he's the type of person that no matter what he decides to do is probably going to have a bright future because he's going to work his his butt off yeah. to get what he wants. So thank you again to him for giving us a late evening here. Uh, yeah. This is a turn and burn for Tom. This is good. <laughs> It's already yawning. Yes. It is it is just past midnight and this And the alarm for work is going off in about four a little under four and a half hours. Yeah. Um yeah. This no, podcast will air within twenty four hours of what we're saying right now. I think the uh the first batch of decals that got sent out yes. are arriving with people and have arrived. We started to, we got a couple pictures already, so remember keep sending us pictures of where you're sticking our stickers. What? Yeah. 
I was almost offended by that. <laughs> Where you're sticking our decals. Yeah. Um, sticker. Um, and we're, we're sending more out all the time. I've got another batch to go out this week. So just all you got to do is send us a message on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever. If you want a couple of stickers, all we need is your address. Yep. Yep. Also, hopefully we're uh, putting in an order for the first batch of t-shirts. Yeah. Here. You're working this, on that. This coming week. So that's good and, stuff. And there's a lot going on here at Uncommon Media LLC. Um, and our our street stock project um, with Al Maynard is coming together soon. Uh, we talked about that, I don't know, a few weeks ago. Hopefully we'll have maybe Al on next, on next week's episode for the update. You know, you know what we need to have Al on for is to have you and Al and Austin Terrio do a roundtable on concussions. Um, Al is a very respected um, player in that field around here. I uh, I don't think I'm I'm in on that conversation. <laughs> okay, well, as you, much said, as you, you mentioned think, concern, concern, yes. So anyway, I take this. I take the safety course for coaching, but <laughs> I don't know if I'm in for a debate with a professor and anything. A like literal that. professor. Yeah. 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 But anyway. we'll hopefully a nice update for you on that. Hopefully next week. Yeah, that's moving along. So. So we'll have that for you. All kinds of a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff going on. Moving and shaking. As for this week, we draw to our conclusion, and we will catch up with you in one more week. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, do it. Uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, leave us that five star review. Facebook, I just. Spotify, just click follow because it's pretty much all you can do on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, Uncommon Deeds, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. For Justin, I'm Tom, and you have been listening to Uncommon Deeds, a production of Uncommon Media.